my Savior's sovereign love for me, what, what encouraging words. And I, I like the idea that his love is relentless, not reckless. You know, there's too much of that nonsense today. We hear these songs that are popular amongst, uh, I'm not even sure what to call them anymore, but those who may say that they are of, the, of, of God, but they sing songs that do not reflect his word. His, word, his love is not reckless. Um, it's not haphazard. It's not just random um, kind of the way that we are. But his love is indeed relentless, and I am so grateful for that, as I'm sure that you are as well. Well, this morning we're going to continue in our study of the book of Colossians, and so we're going to be going there as we have been for a while now, and that's okay. We've kept nowhere else to go, so we might as well enjoy our stay in Colossae. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. We're looking at Colossians chapter 3 and considering um, the things that Paul has for us here, um, which is significant um, in that he is taking us back to all that we have in Jesus Christ, which is important for us to be mindful of. And today we're going to be continuing to unpackage the meaning of verse 10 and to consider how this plays out in our lives. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into the Word. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your relentless love. Thank you for uh, your sovereign love of us that, that pursued us and kept us and continues to keep us and will preserve us through all the ages. Thank you for loving us first. Thank you for a love that overcomes sin and, and separation and all of those barriers Thank you for the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for our union with Christ. And, and may we, as we are exhorted to do here by Paul, live in the reality of the transforming work of that salvation that you have so graciously given to us. May we, as encouraged by Peter, be mindful of who we are as the new creation, this royal priesthood, a chosen race, people who have been set apart who have been saved to proclaim your excellencies. You, you saved us not to leave us to ourselves and to engage in frivolity, but to reflect the wonders and the transforming work that you wrought in us through Jesus Christ. May our hearts be encouraged today as we examine the Word. May our thoughts be lifted upwards towards you as we ponder the wonders of our salvation, the magnitude of it, that He who has begun a good work on us will indeed finish it and see it to the end. We praise you that you justified us and that you sanctified us and that you continue to preserve us and that you will indeed keep us until the end and that someday that you will glorify us and we look forward to that day. We look forward to your return, and we pray that you would return quickly and come back and take us unto yourself. And we look forward to that day, and until that day, may we, may we continue to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ and, and keeping our eyes focused on all that he has done for us. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul, in Colossians chapter 3, writing here to these believers. There's a problem in Colossae, we know, because there's a false teacher in their midst, and it's created some issues and some problems. There has been teaching that has taken their eyes off of Jesus Christ, causing them rather to focus on their own merit, their own works, a lot of nonsense, spiritism, mysticism, Gnosticism, a syncretism, if you will, between a variety of different types of thoughts and ideas drawing from Judaism and paganism and the worship of angels and a lot of other things. The consequence of all this, although appearing to be wise, it was not, and it resulted in people falling away from their focus on Jesus Christ. And Paul here writes a very clear and precise Christology, if you will. He is teaching them about Jesus Christ. And let's not forget that. If we go back to chapter 1 and chapter 2, we are reminded who Jesus Christ is. We're reminded that He is the head of all things, that He is the Creator God, that He is the bodily expression of the triune God, that in Him all things dwell and all things come from Him. He is the ruler of all things, that Christ is preeminent, that He is omniscient, omnipotent, all-powerful, and that he is in control of all things. 
This is the Christ in whom you have been placed. This is the Christ who transforms you. This is the Christ who creates in you a new heart, giving you a desire and moving you forward into the life of the redeemed. The consequences of this salvation is that you then begin to express what it is that you possess, and that is the working power of the Holy Spirit that comes out by things that you do not do and the things that you do do. Ha <laughs> ha. You're waiting for that one, I know. But nonetheless, you understand. And so for Paul, there is a reality to salvation. And that reality come, comes out <clears throat> in the way that we live, ultimately. It only stands to reason that if we have been saved by such a wonderful God through the wonderful work of the person of Jesus Christ that those who have been placed in him will then ultimately live the reality out of that in their lives. What's interesting is that Paul speaks of this idea of this renewal, a renewal which takes time over the course of one's life through the process of sanctification, but at the same time is guaranteed because of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, which is the principle of vivification that we talked about last week. This animation, if you will, this growing into the reality of what we are is something that is wrought within us by and through the Holy Spirit based upon our position in Christ. And so Paul, understanding the reality of this, reaching back into the theology of chapter 1 and chapter 2, says in verse 1 of chapter 3, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set or fix your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died. Now, don't forget this. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's a big deal. That verse is is very important with respect to understanding what it is that's taking place in us through our salvation. Paul would say, it is no longer I who lives, but what? Christ. Christ lives. In verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, verse 5, the consequences of that great salvation that's just been described in verse 1 through 4 is this. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. That's the doctrine of mortification of sin, putting sin to death. Verse 6, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Paul, they're contrasting who you once were with who you are now. And that the fact that those two things are very dichotomous. They're separate. And then that they're not the same. You're different now. You're no longer a son of disobedience. You're a child of the light. As he communicates in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. You've been rescued, taken out of the domain of of darkness. As a consequence of that, having died to the old self, now living in Christ, you can do certain things. Verse 8, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. It sounds like second, it sounds like first Peter chapter 2, doesn't it? Right there at the beginning, Peter says the very same thing. Isn't that remarkable? Well, that's because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And inspiring them to write these. I have a bottle of water in there, Deb, if you could get that for me. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, But Christ is all and in all. Thanks. So, as for those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Well, what we understand then is that Paul here, beginning in verse 10, or verse 9 rather, begins to move us in the reality of the expression of this in terms of our growing into the image of the one who created us. And this renewal takes place through the process of sanctification. Sanctification is is both monergistic and synergistic in some respects as it relates to us living out the reality of the transformation wrought by our salvation. And I want to make certain that you understand that. I want to make certain that you're not looking at your sanctification as a form of justification. Your sanctification is a result of your justification. You're not making yourself more justified through your sanctification. You're not working to secure your salvation in the future. Your salvation is secure now. You cannot become unjustified. We talked about that this morning in Sunday school. And Paul here is speaking to the importance of understanding that. Christ is ultimately the one who has put off the old. We know that from verse 11 in chapter 2. And in faith, we look to Christ and the gospel as Christ is set forth, and we do this daily. We continue to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We continue to look to Jesus Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith, knowing that as he is described in chapter 1, that he is indeed powerful and able to do that which he has started. He will finish it. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the author and the finisher of our salvation. And so it's by faith. Even in the context of our sanctification, it still comes from Christ. We are still resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, even in the context of our sanctification. And again, you're not becoming more saved. You're becoming more Christ-like, but you're as saved as you're ever going to be. And I hope that you understand this because there's a lot of error in this. The idea that you then end up faithing in your faithfulness, resting in what you are doing, resting in your disciplines, looking to the things that you do on a daily basis as confidence for your faith is the wrong thing to do. If you're doing that, you're a Roman Catholic and not a Protestant. We look to Jesus Christ continuously. Why do you think that Paul would do what he did? By way of reminder, let's just go back and let's be reminded again of the incomparable Jesus Christ. Beginning with verse 13 in chapter 1, we don't want to forget the foundation that has been laid for us to then do these imperative type things. These indicatives, these teachings that we have about Jesus Christ are incredibly important for us. So by way of reminder, let's go back and be refreshed in our recollection. Verse 13 of chapter 1, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Now look at all the things that he is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Do you have confidence in him? What? Can I ask you a question? Do you need something more? Can we add anything to this? Is there anything that's deficient? Is there anything that's missing? All of the bases are covered. 
There is nothing else that you need. Christ is perfectly, holy, fully sufficient for all things, including your sanctification. Now, remember what the scripture speaks to. The scripture often speaks to the idea that sanctification is the fulfillment of God's will for your life. Even this is the will of God. First Thessalonians chapter 5, your sanctification. Look at Ephesians for a moment. This companion epistle written at the same time as Colossians, very similar in many respects. In chapter 2, a passage that's familiar to us. Indeed, verses 1 through 8 of Ephesians chapter 2, or verse 9, are very familiar to us. It's verse 10 that sometimes seems to fall off the chart a little bit, though. Bearing in mind that what Paul then says is that the salvation that is expressed and given to you in verses 1 through 9 results in something. He saved you, as he defines it within those first nine verses, to do something. And it's expressed in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. You didn't make yourself this way. You had no inclination to do that. This is the sovereign work of God. For we are his workmanship, created, created in yourself. Created in the best essence of yourself. Created in that good inner man that's always been there but just couldn't get out. No. No, created in Christ Jesus. You have to be created in Christ Jesus. You must be created in Christ Jesus because it's only in Jesus Christ that goodness dwells. It is out of Jesus Christ that all your good works come. Do you understand this? When you're doing something, when you're engaged in things, you're simply expressing the reality of the, of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. The very fact that you are indeed in Christ Jesus produces the very things that are pleasing to him. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Paul has defined what some of those good works are in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and verses 8. Now look what happens in verse 10. You, they're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, what? Which God prepared beforehand so that you might walk in them. No, so that you would walk in them that you will walk in them because that is God's intended design and purpose for you. I hope that you're beginning to understand the idea of what Paul is speaking to when he says that in Jesus Christ, he cut away the old man and he clothed you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the new if you will. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives within me. And because of that, then I begin to engage in patterns of behavior that reflect the reality of this amazing transformation. So if someone says to me, Pastor John, I'm a believer. Okay, great. Let's see. Now, I'm not asking them to do something in the context of something that they cannot do, but I'm expecting that there's going to be a demonstration to some degree of what they are, the reality of what they are. If they say to me that they're a Christian, I'm going to anticipate, because it has to happen, that they're going to be living and acting like a Christian. Now, this does not mean that Christians do not sin. We do sin. We still have this flesh that we're, we're, we're in in the context of being bound to those, some of those desires. Paul speaks of that in Romans chapter 7, but he resolves the tension in Jesus Christ, moving into Romans chapter 8. But there's clearly an expectation that the reality of this indwelling work of Jesus Christ is going to play out in the way that I live, and the things I say, and the things I don't do, and how I act. It's an ongoing thing that we do. We live in the context, the reality of Ephesians 2.10, by and through the power of the gospel. It is Jesus Christ who sees this to the end. Christ is my storehouse, if you will. 
And faith is the root of all Christian holiness. You are not inherently holy in the context of day. You're drawing something out of yourself. You're drawing from that which God has given to you by, the, by and through the Holy Spirit. As we know, Christ started the work and he will finish it. And because of this, I now have a desire to do something I never had before. I want to respond in obedience. I, I actually want to do the things to please the Lord. I, I want to put to death these things in my life. I, I want to, to quelch anger and bitterness and slander. I don't want to be engaged in those things because I understand that I am being renewed by and through the power of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the essence of Christianity is not what I am doing, but rather what he has done. What he has done so, so too often. What we are doing is focusing on, on the things that we are doing. At the end of the day, we lay down on our beds, we sit down in our favorite chair, and we reflect on the things that we've done that day. And unfortunately, too, all too often, we take great confidence in, in those things. Rather than stepping back and reflecting on the fact that all of those things are just a manifestation of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit given to me in my salvation based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. In faith, I am still resting in his finished work that I know that my best is the absolute worst in the context of what I could offer and that I still cling to Jesus Christ even on my very best day. Even on my very best day. And so... We, we, we must grasp what Paul is speaking to here in Colossians and elsewhere, making certain that we're understanding sanctification and justification being distinguished. So, I want you to write this down. If you have a pen and paper, I hope that you do. I think this will help you. And again, um, drawing from the, the Westminster Catechism, question 35, what is sanctification? And perhaps some of you already have that in the back of your Bible or elsewhere, but I think it's important for you to write it down. You can write it in your Bible somewhere on the back leaf or something, but I think it will help you. So write this down. Sanctification is the work. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man, whereby we are renewed in the whole man. After the image of God, after the image of God, and are enabled more and more and are enabled more and more to die unto sin to die unto sin and live unto righteousness so, the catechism. What is sanctification? The little kids in Sunday school are learning sanctification, and soon they're all going to be up here, and they're going to be they're going to be doing that for us, and it'll be a real blessing. So, again, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed. In the whole man, after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. All right, so you've got that. It's written down now. So when you write things down, you remember them better. All right? And I know that we're all suffering from a lot of memory loss these days. And we're all taking our, our Prevagen and drinking five-hour energies and doing all sorts of other things to help. So I hope that you're all geared up. So, look, 
Paul, in verse 10, says this, and have, so he says at the, in the verse 9, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. That is what happened in verse 11 of chapter 2. And have put on the new self. This is what Christ did. Christ did this for you. And this new self is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So reaching back then to this definition of sanctification, we're reminded that sanctification is the work of God's free grace. All right? That's God working in you. And the consequences of that sanctification, as you look at that definition, is this. It is because of that that you are being renewed in all of your life, in all of the things that you do. How you live and how you think and how you act and how you incorporate your life into culture. It impacts everything. Bearing in mind this, that this is a new humanity. You are a new and different person. You're a new Adam, if you will. You're in the new Adam with Christ. And just like you did the old things with the old Adam and reflected your placement in him and your connection to him, that same reality transfers over to your placement in Jesus Christ, who is the second Adam, the new Adam. And just like you did things when you were in the old Adam, you'll do things when you're in the new Adam that reflect that reality. So sanctification is the work of God's free grace. God did this for you. You didn't do it for yourself. And he is renewing you in the whole man after the image of God. And Jesus Christ is the bodily expression of the triune God. And because of that, you are enabled, that is that you are equipped, you are empowered, you are animated, you are vivified more and more to die, mortify, put to death sin, and live vivified unto righteousness, empowered unto righteousness. Do you see what's going on here? God has saved you, and now he has equipped you to live out the reality of the salvation that he has so graciously wrought within you. This is why Paul says, now in verse 10, and have put on the new self. That is the sovereign act of God. And you are being renewed, changed over, transformed, renovated, if you will, to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So, we understand that. And because of this, there's a consequence. As a consequence of what God is doing in us, we can have assurance of his love for us. We can have peace of conscience. We can have joy in the Holy Spirit. There can be an increase, and there is an increase of grace in our life. And there is also then perseverance to the end perseverance to the end. And so, when we're changed by God, it encompasses all of Christian living. It impacts all of Christian living. This is something that Francis Schaeffer lamented so much because he was concerned that, that salvation was not, was not changing the way people thought about culture, was not changing the way that they interacted with culture. They would get saved but still act like the world. They would get saved and still be engaged in the philosophies and ideas of the world. There was no transformative impact on culture. And so as a consequence of that, he doubted their salvation. Because the, the necessary consequences of being saved is that you're going to impact that in which you are placed. Is that not Christ's argument in the Sermon on the Mount that follows the Beatitudes? What is the DNA of the Christian? It's the Beatitudes. And indeed, Christ would say in the Beatitudes that you are blessed in the context of those things that play out. Being poor in spirit, seeking the kingdom of God, being gentle, being meek all of those things, you are spiritually happy in the context of those things. You're going to get persecuted for it. You're a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper, so that means you're shining the gospel light into the darkness of the world. You're going to get killed for that most likely at some point. People are going to hate you. But he also says then in the following verses, after the Beatitudes and the similitudes, what? You're salt and light. And indeed, it would make no sense if you're salt and light that you would somehow then not be that if that's what you have been created to be. Salt is what? Salty. Light is what? Lighty. It, it shines. 
right? We've talked about being salty and lighty, right? That's our thing. So, for Paul, what we see then is this. When I'm, under, when I'm understanding who I am, I then have a confidence to live out to the reality of this great salvation. I can do what, second, what 1 Peter 2 9 says, and that is to proclaim the excellencies of him who saved me. And I do that by the manner in which I engage culture and other people and the way that I then marshal my own life, living out the reality of the presence of Christ within me through the Holy Spirit. This renewal takes place over time. Paul says, who is being renewed. We're all in the process of renewal. Some of us are newer than others. Some of us are farther along in that process, and that's okay. God sovereignly works that out. We spoke this morning about Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan would even recognize that there were some who had little faith. And in the context of their little faith, they made their way to the, to the heavenly kingdom, but as through fire and trial, there was much tribulation and turmoil in their life. Now, Bunyan would say that's not the way that you want to make the journey. We want to be people of great faith because we have a great God and we have a great Savior who mightily saved us to be renewed and who is renewing us. Christ is doing the work. Christ is the object of my faith and I rest in his finished work which moves me forward into this life of obedience and blessing in Jesus Christ. Paul teases out the significance of this issue by noting that the renewal is to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, reaching back into the idea that our transformation is into the very life of Christ, that we're being changed. Not that we become little gods, heaven forbid. We don't teach the error of the Mormons or or anyone else like that. But the significance of this is that there is a wonderful, miraculous changing of us that moves us into the context of a life that is reflective of Jesus Christ and our union with Him. So for Paul, this renewal is universal and moral in nature. In fact, the renewal is so significant that it breaks down the very barriers that man has created to create division amongst people, whether they be socioeconomic, demographic, based upon your DNA, your social status, your economic structure, whatever it might be, because Christ trumps all of that. Christ overcomes all of those things. In Christ, there are no distinctions in that regard. And so when we have people who are so fascinated and focused on racism on both sides of the issue, they're wrong. They're not paying attention to what Paul is teaching here in Colossians. They're not focusing on the fact that we are renewed. They're living rather in their former lusts from which they have been saved. They are dwelling on the things that are in the past rather than focusing on the renewal, which speaks to both groups of people, those who treat people in a racist way and those who feel that they have been treated in a racist way. Those who have been treated in a racist way no longer hold grudges, no longer are angry, are no longer upset. They move forward in Christ in love with their brothers and sisters, not claiming their rights, but proclaiming Christ. And the same for those who were engaged in those behaviors. They are transformed, they are renewed, they are changed, they are no longer to be engaged in those patterns of behavior. We're missing the boat, folks. We are flat, we've done everything else. Oh, let's go to Karl Marx. Oh, that'll work. God-hater that he was, burning in hell right now. But the church, let's do that. Let's embrace critical race theory. Let's bring it into the church. Let's put it in our Sunday school material. Let's train our teachers in it. Let's talk about it from the pulpit and teach it like it's the gospel. You've got to be kidding me. No, this transformation is universal and it's moral. Look, go back back to Peter for me for a minute. Go back to 1 Peter. 
consider the comprehensive nature of the language used by Peter here in this epistle. 1 Peter, we read it this morning, chapter 2. And Peter teases out the significance of the dramatic transformation that this renewal results in a discernible, recognizable, demonstrable change in people. But you, that is the redeemed of God, he's writing to believers. Go back to chapter 1 in the verse, first part. He talks about who he's writing to, the dispersed, persecuted Christians to the outer realms of the Roman Empire. He calls them in verse 9, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood. Now, there's a lot to be said about that. That's for another day. A holy nation. So, there you see that universal moral transformation. A people for God's own possession. You're not your own anymore. You've been bought and paid for with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 of chapter 1, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in verse 9 of chapter 2, so why? Why is all this? Why are you a chosen race? Why are you a royal priesthood? Why are you a holy nation? Why are you a people for God's own possession? Why? So that you may proclaim, tell forth, state it as a fact. Don't shy away from it. Engage the culture. Step into the fight. Don't back away from it. One who proclaims is heralding a good news message. That's what's going on here. This is the good news of the gospel. You want to transform racists? Give them the good news of the gospel. You want to change people who are bitter over being treated improperly? Give them the gospel. That's the only answer, friends. There is no other answer. There is no social construct. There is no social program. There is no Supreme Court case that can change that. Only Jesus Christ can change that. It's the gospel and the gospel alone. And until we get our arms around it, we're going to have the same old problems over and over. Why have I been changed? Why have I been saved? Why am I being renewed? So that I might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of what? Darkness. Where into his marvelous light. Verse 10, for once you were not a people. But now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. I mean, we've missed the boat. We have receded from culture. We have stepped out of science. We've stepped out of law. We've stepped out of medicine. We did everything. We've allowed the culture to tell us that, oh, you can have your religious beliefs, but don't dare tell me that they're true. Don't step into science and tell me that God created the world in six days, that it's not 14 billion years old. Don't tell me that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Don't tell me that there is a structure and an anatomy that's designed by God, the master engineer, the master creator, that God has equipped us to deal with a whole host and variety of things. Don't change me. Let's rely upon what God has stated. But no, we don't do that. God has given us good medicine. He's given us good science, and I, I rejoice in it, but we have acquiesced too much to it in the contest of not, of not recognizing that it's from God. And so for Paul, this renewal is significant. It is utterly transformative, as it is for Peter. Now, let's keep something in mind. These people weren't living their best life now. These people one day are living in Rome. They're going to work. They're, they're going to the marketplace. They're going to church. They've been saved. God has saved them through the preaching, the preaching of Peter and Paul and others. They are the new church. They are the way. They are the people in the book of Acts, if you will. But then the empire says, no, 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 enough of this. So they come knocking on their door one day, and they grab them, and they take them. And they don't let them gather up their goods, what little they had. 
They don't let them do anything. They don't let them find their friends and their neighbors. No, they usher them out of the Roman Empire. They march them to the very edges of the Roman Empire where the barbarians live. And they drop them off there and say, good luck. Here you are. Now they're the dispersed. That's who Peter's writing to, for Pete's sake. Now, can you imagine that for a minute? What do you think is on their mind? How am I going to eat? What does Peter say? You're a royal priesthood. You're a chosen nation. You're a people of God's own choosing. Now, proclaim the excellencies of him who saved you. Well, I, I got to, no, proclaim the excellencies of him who saved you. I got to build a house. Proclaim the excellencies of him who saved you. Right, we're playing a game, folks. Evangelicalism has abandoned the truth of Scripture. They've bought a lie over the truth, and they are they're putting us all into the church. CRT, social justice, gay Christianity, all this nonsense. They've corrupted the very message of the gospel and the hope of it. The very hope of it. Paul's renewal here in Colossians in chapter 3 is a renewal that is universal and fully transformative to those who it is applied. This means that it touches and affects every area of the person's entire life. You now view economics through the lens of Scripture. You now view politics through the lens of Scripture. You now view justice through the lens of Scripture. You now view medicine through the lens of Scripture. You now view the law through the lens of Scripture. You view engineering through the lens of Scripture. You view everything through the lens of Scripture. You're not your own. You belong to God. And you have been saved for a purpose. You're in his kingdom. Now, this kingdom is different from the kingdom of the world. And it stands in stark contrast to the kingdom of the world. And in that kingdom, we live and we act a certain way because we are citizens of a new kingdom. We have been placed in that kingdom by God for a reason. To shine forth the glories of the gospel. To proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ, who indeed can change anyone. He changed you, didn't he? Oh, that's right. I forgot. You were a good catch. Well, he didn't change you much. He just changed you a little bit because you were already well on your way. No, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And that's the other problem. One of the reasons that Christians don't proclaim the excellencies of him who saved them is because they don't believe they need to save very much. They aren't convinced of their own wickedness, their own sinfulness, especially if you're an American. Well, yeah, goodness gracious, if, if, if an American gets saved, he was already halfway there. Now, friends, holiness becomes an inward thing that must fill our heart and the very essence of who we are. It is at the core of who we are, and that's Paul's point here in this passage. Paul uses very expressive, very precise language here with regard to this transformation that is taking place. Paul here is, is, is speaking to a change of positions and identity with regard to who we once were. That's in verse 9. And now he intends the same here in verse 10 with regard to this new self, this new man. And this is a change both of regeneration to new life with a new heart individually and of transfer, and of transfer listen to this, from being counted. Now listen, listen, listen from being transferred, from being counted in Adam. So that's how it used to be, right? Before God saved you, you were counted as being where? In Adam. You're not neutral. You weren't considered to be a Swiss. Unpersuaded either way, in the middle. No, you were in Adam, Romans 5. But now Paul is telling me that I am now established in Jesus Christ both individually and corporately. Both in the context of who I am myself and how I interact within people in the body of Christ, but also in the context of a complete new humanity. A new humanity. Think, friends, if you will, for a moment, if in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, this was the message being preached in churches rather than 14 verses of just as I am. 
How many times do people have to get saved for them to impact the culture? No, if we, had, if we had focused, if we would focus, if we continue and ought to focus on this to see that we are established in Jesus Christ, that makes all the difference of, in the world. This language that Paul uses here denotes this, this idea that this transformation is new and it's invigorating and it's vivifying, if you will. And it indeed results in transformation. It makes you wonder that perhaps all those people who came forward on the 14th verse of Just As I Am really didn't get saved. I don't think they did. Where are they? Where's the impact? Where's the culture? Where's the impact on morality and all of those things? I'm not seeing much of it. In fact, it seems to be sliding away. Well, for Paul, this renewal in verse 10, he says, and have put on the new self who is being renewed renovated to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So, he's making us new. This is an inward transformation. It is wrought by God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says this, Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. The present tense that Paul uses here underscores the continual nature of the process. The passive voice emphasizes that the accomplishment of this renewal is the doing of another. It is God himself that is doing this. This this renewal, this new new person that's spoken of here in verse 10 speaks to a regard to the quality as well, that there is a qualitative change in difference, that there is something uniquely better and different with regard to this new person versus the old person, and that would make sense. God has made us new by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. We are by His grace not what we once were in Adam. Yet he is ever and always working to make what he has affected in us true of us in every dimension of our being. He is thus always making us anew, actualizing a new quality of life here and now. Not your best life, but a better quality of life, a life that is in Christ. Not a life that you get everything you want. There's no separation from suffering. We're going to have suffering, but the quality of life is distinctly different in that it is grounded and based in Jesus Christ. In this, we can have what? No matter what we face, constant hope. And we are not what we shall yet be in Christ by God's grace. Now, this ongoing transformation, as we know from verse 10, is according to or renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. This is the fourth time that Paul has used this phrase, or this word, in this epistle. Chapter 1, verse 9, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 2, now here in verse 10 and chapter 3. And this word knowledge is significant for Paul. That that the transformation is based upon an understanding of something, a reality that's grounded in truth. It points to the fullness, the depth, and completeness of the knowledge. And this is, this is a way for Paul to also jab at the false teachers. He's taking a shot at them because they're always talking about knowledge and wisdom and things of that nature. But here Paul speaks to something that's significant. He says to a true knowledge, a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This is significant. This is not random nor haphazard. It's not based upon the whims of mankind or some esoteric theory. It's based upon the reality of our union with Jesus Christ. And as we know from chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul makes it abundantly clear that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we have all of that. We are in him in that way. And so for Paul, there is, a, there is a true demonstrable reality to one's salvation. And it comes out and is played out 
in the obvious, notable transformation that is visible as we reflect the life of Christ in our life, as we reflect Christ in our life. This is why Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, to your faith, in your relationship with Jesus Christ, counting on Him, resting in Him, add the following virtues. It only makes sense that Christians are going to live that way. This is what Paul is talking about. We're going to leave off there for today. We'll finish up the balance of that in verse 11 next Sunday, Lord willing. But friends, my, 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 my concern is that at the end of the day, we are forgetting who we are as the redeemed of God. We are forgetting that we live in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are forgetting that there is a renewal that is taking place in us, being wrought by God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And once we begin to get our arms around it, once we begin to see that justification is something that God has wrought in us by His grace, through Jesus Christ, that there is a transformation that comes as a consequence of that. Remember the definition of sanctification. And and don't forget... To, to remember that. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man. You've been made new after the image of God. And as a consequence of that, you're enabled, you're equipped, you're animated, you're vivified more and more to mortify sin and to live unto righteousness, all because of Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? Isn't that better than CRT? Isn't that better than social justice? You give that, and you preach that, and and, and God's word does not go out void. God will bless that. He's not going to bless CRT. He's not going to bless social justice. He'll reject it. That's error. That's man's thinking. Let's rely upon the strength and power that we're given by God to live in a manner that is pleasing to Him, to act in obedience out of gospel gratitude, and to tell other people about Jesus Christ, to proclaim His excellencies. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the encouragement, the exhortation that it contains. Help us to be mindful of who we are in Jesus Christ Help us to be ever grateful for the great transforming work of God's grace in our life. We rejoice in the fact that all the work has been done. We rejoice in the fact that we get to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the fact that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. We rejoice in the fact that He bore all of our sin for us. And we rejoice in the fact that You placed us graciously into Your presence through His finished work alone. And that You will sustain us and keep us from now and forevermore. We praise your name for these wonderful truths, and we praise you for the renewal that has been wrought within us. We rejoice that we are known by you through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you.